may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. A very important, very relevant question hangs over our Old Testament reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Who speaks for God? And those who speak for God, how do we know if they're credible and deserve our attention? The setting for the book of Deuteronomy is the end of Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness. They are on the doorstep of the land of promise They've arrived. Moses, who has guided them all these years, however, is about to die. And so he sends or he gives them a a final sermon, as it were. That is the book of Deuteronomy. And our little snippet from it that David just read for us is a promise. Moses says that God will raise up for you, children of Israel, a prophet like me, someone who will mediate the presence of God to you, someone who will liberate you from future captors, someone who will remind you of your future. A prophet will come after me. And in the hundreds of years that followed Moses' promise, God did indeed raise up prophet after prophet after prophet who fulfilled aspects of Moses' prophecy. However, by the time of Jesus, The people of Israel were still, as it were, on the outside of the land of promise. They were still pining and waiting to hear a definitive word from God. They were still hoping for a prophet like Moses. Prophets prophets are interesting because as prophets recede from living memory, the farther we are away from them, the more we tend to like them. It's easy to sanitize prophets over the years. But in the present tense, prophets are profoundly unpopular. Why? Because they don't confirm our suspicions about the world. They challenge us. They're not accommodating. They're not apologetic. There is a confrontation with truth. And that's what makes prophets worthwhile. And I want to say here at the outset, that's what makes relationships with any authority figure worthwhile. They are unapologetic about their authority. Imagine if you are feeling very ill. Let's say you're nauseous, you don't have an appetite, you're extremely tired, uh, and you have this significant pain in your stomach that's only getting worse. You think, oh my gosh, I need to go to a doctor, get this thing figured out. And then the doctor says to you, you know, just be at ease. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to tell you anything that's going to upset you. Just try and be more positive. Maybe you'll start feeling better. That doctor isn't worth his weight and salt, right? Is that an expression? I don't know. The point is, we, for the dog, for, uh, what we would want in that scenario is a doctor to come alongside us and say, look, this is really serious, and I'm going to have to operate on you right away, but I'm going to stay, I'm going to walk with you through this process. I'm going to guarantee your safety because I am going to look after you. What we want is someone who operates, who practices, who speaks with gracious but unapologetic authority. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this text from Mark. This is Jesus, the prophet of whom Moses spoke, one of the first things that he does as a public minister, we might say. And what I want you to see are two aspects of the authority of Jesus. Jesus' creative authority 
and Jesus' disarming authority. Creative and disarming authority. So first, creative authority. Uh, Miss Sarah already did such a good job walking us through what happens. Jesus goes into some sleepy synagogue in Capernaum and delivers a fantastic sermon. The people, it says in verse 22, are amazed. Jesus was so forthright, so confident. No one had ever heard anything like that before. It's odd that Mark, the gospel writer, doesn't tell us like what Jesus said. We have no hint as to why his presentation was so memorable, but something about it lodged in people's memory. What we do know, however, is that in the middle of the sermon, Jesus performed an exorcism. A man with an impure spirit called out, and Jesus took care of business, as it were. Uh, The four Gospels tell us almost nothing about what Jesus looked like. We have no idea if he was tall or short or particularly good-looking or particularly average No idea. But what the Gospels do tell us over and over again is what Jesus sounded like. And they use a word that we hear in this text. It's the word that's used over 20 times to refer to how Jesus sounded. And the word is authority. Jesus taught with authority. Now, when we use that word authority in a context to refer to someone who's speaking about something in public... We usually, we, you, we usually mean it as a way of saying, like, they're an expert. Does that make sense? Like, let me give you an example. So if there's a professor so-and-so who is an authority on Russian literature, what we mean by that is this person knows more than anyone else on Russian literature. They're an authority on the subject. But I don't think that is what the New Testament writers mean when they refer to Jesus as someone who taught with authority. That word comes from a verb that means it is permitted or it is lawful. So to say that Jesus has authority is to say that Jesus is free. He he is free to act without hindrance. He is free from constraint. And Jesus is free to improvise and pronounce And you can imagine how that freedom, how that authority would have manifested itself in the way that Jesus taught. I don't know if you noticed, but in Mark, um, well, Mark contrasts Jesus and his teaching with the teaching of the scribes or the teachers of the law. And those were the experts, the Bible experts of Jesus' day. And we know that scribes taught, well, we know that scribes said nothing that wasn't explicitly licensed or sanctioned by tradition. And aside from like undoubtedly being a very boring way to communicate, we know that the scribes were burdensome in what they said. People, when hearing the scribes talk, were almost like weighed down by centuries of custom and tradition, hemmed in. It has to be like this because that authority figure said this or that. You get what I'm saying? But when Jesus gets up there, he is free. He has this this willingness and this ability to improvise and make connections where no one had made connections before and say in the present what God is up to, not just what God said to so-and-so hundreds of years before. He has this freedom with 
Israel's history and sacred texts. Now, you know, who cares, right? Like, to have authority over a book or a collection of texts, like, that doesn't take that much courage to make novel interpretations of something. The real acid test of Jesus's authority is not the way he taught, but the way that he responded to the man possessed by an impure spirit, right? It's one thing to be free to offer a new interpretation. It's another thing to be confronted with a truly tragic situation, someone whose humanity has been robbed from him and have the freedom to overcome that, right? To have the freedom to humanize and and treat with dignity someone who has been so afflicted. Uh, If you ever had the experience of, of being in a meaningful relationship with someone who's very damaged, you know that in some ways your relationship is kind of defined by that reality. So how free would Jesus be to relate to this person as a true human being. Well, we know. Sarah already shared for us what happened. With one word, shut up, Jesus says. Get out of him. There's no elaborate ceremony. There's no ritual. There's no, what's the Harry Potter wand? Is there a term for that? Whatever. Whatever the wand is from Harry Potter. There's none of that. Jesus just says one word, and the man is instantaneously restored to mental health. Jesus had the authority to restore that man's sanity. He was consumed by clouds of darkness, and Jesus had the authority to dispel them and to shine the sun of the Spirit. He had creative authority to make that man new. Now, as as you all know, I'm assuming most of you know, um, our rector, the leader of this church, Peter Coelho, has been gone for a number of weeks. He's returning soon. And uh, Peter's a great preacher, and if you, when you hear Peter preach, uh, I wonder if he will listen to this one day. Uh, Peter has this way, when he's trying to illustrate a point, he'll make a very matter-of-fact reference to a movie or a dramatic performance from like 40 years ago, as if we all possess his encyclopedic knowledge of film. It's a very endearing quality. Uh, But I want to overcome my fear of being a poor man's Peter, and I want to offer my own cinematic illustration for the record books. Just kidding. But there is, um, in filmography and the study and the discussion around film, there's this term um, that's called final cut privilege. Final cut. And what that refers to is a privilege that a very, very few in Hollywood directors enjoy to be able to approve or license whatever final version of the film that is released to the general public. Does that make sense? So like Steven Spielberg, his name carries a lot of weight. He has final cut privilege. Some no-name director of like a mid-tier action movie does not. There's going to be a boardroom somewhere just deciding who exactly sees what. But a real director who has real gravitas has final cut privilege. They decide how the story ends. They decide what you see. And the bigger the story is, the more grand in scope, the harder it is to have that final cut privilege. What I want to say is that in the story that is God's creation, in the story that is our planet, in the story that is your life, Jesus has final cut privilege. He can develop characters whenever he wants. He can change the soundtrack. An hour before the movie is supposed to be released, Jesus can develop a character. He can turn a painful, awful situation into an occasion of great hope. 
Jesus has creative authority. He has a final cut privilege. And the people in the synagogue that Sabbath morning bear witness to Jesus' creative authority when they say, that was a new teaching. Did you catch that word? That was a new teaching. Like, wow, I have never heard anything like that before. To use an analogy from the New Testament, that is a new wineskin that bursts the old. Like, I did not know that was possible. Jesus has creative authority to take a desert and to make it an oasis, to take a bombed out city and make it a new Eden. He has creative authority. And what I want to say to apply this first point is, is, is simply this. The Lord our God, Jesus Christ, fills your heart with that newness, that possibility each and every day. I want to remind you that over and over and over again, you can draw upon that supply of newness, of possibility. First, in your own life, the areas where you are stuck and you find yourself so constrained and habituated to disappointing yourself and others, I want you to believe today that Jesus has creative authority, that he can turn that story around that nothing is too hard for him, and that the final version of your life is something that he has control over. He has final cut. He's Quentin Tarantino. He has final cut privilege. He decides how the story ends. And so first for your own life, but also in the, our wider world, right? Jesus, he gives us this creative authority to bless us, but he also authorizes us as his ambassadors, to use it, to follow him and join him in his mission of making all things new. There's this great quote by the missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin. He says, the deepest motive for mission is simply this, the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Now I know, like, wow, what in the world does that mean? What he, well, I think what he's saying is that there are places in our world, these frontiers, these border areas, where God and God's will is in conflict with the will of our, the enemy of our souls. And so whether it's in your job, when you work in finance or software or healthcare or education, whether you're in the arts, whether you're at home and raising children and all of your most important relationships, there are those frontier areas where there is a question, who's going to win? God's way or not God's way? And we, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, possess his creative authority. And we can turn, overturn the old and create new possibilities for people. I really mean that. And in our mundane jobs, we can issue in new possibilities for people that we work with, that we see languishing under sin. We can create new possibilities for them. We are in Jesus. And everything that's true of him is in some derivative way true of us too. We have his creative authority. Okay, that's point one. Man, I'm, I'm animated today. Uh, point two, uh, disarming authority. Disarming authority. Now, there is this debate amongst New Testament commentators uh, about the meaning of verse 24 in our reading. And I'll, I'll read it for you. 
the, the man possessed by the demon says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the debate among scholars is about that word us. Who is the demoniac man referring to? I, I always assumed that that man was speaking for like the demonic powers writ large. And he's saying, you come to destroy us. And that very well might be true. Uh, but what some scholars point out is that there's good evidence that that man, the demoniac, is actually referring to the congregation that's gathered in Capernaum that day. And he's saying, Jesus, you are confronting all of us. As if to say, that man who was possessed by that unclean spirit was not the only person sitting comfortably in that synagogue that morning that was under the influence of evil. Have you come to destroy us? Jesus, have you come to overturn our lives, all of us? And the reason why I like that interpretation is because it makes sense of the reaction of the people that day. We already read a few times that it says in our English Bibles that they were amazed. But that's not a, I don't like that word very much in, in the translation because when we use the word amazed, we basically mean good, right? Like when we say, man, that was amazing, we mean that was awesome. But the word uh, in the original language has, has connotations of like, it's more like they were shocked. They were astonished. They were struck to their core. They were decentered. They were panicked. Oh my gosh, this means something for me. It wasn't like, that was exciting. It was like, whoa, that man had authority. Jesus' presence in their lives, in that room, excuse me, their lives were going to change. And that might have been very liberating, but it was undoubtedly unsettling for them. Now, when we think about um, evil spirits and what that means, this man was possessed by an evil spirit, I think we would do well to not so much think about like ghosts, like disembodied, sentient beings who can like make trouble out of nowhere. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but I think for our purposes, it's best to think about the way that the enemy works in our life as the enemy aggravates and amplifies and exaggerates things in our hearts that are already there and spins them out of control to the point that they strangle or, or destroy us. So, what, so as if to say, the enemy is not like wrecking your car on the way home from church out of nowhere. Again, I mean, that might happen, but I think it's better to think about it as like, if you have, like we all do, selfishness, our pride, our hostility, our apathy, our prejudice, those vices become little doorways for the enemy to work. And the enemy uses those openings, those areas of disintegration to dehumanize us. And the best illustration I've ever heard for this, ever heard about this, which I'm, for the record, just stealing, is um, from The Lord of the Rings. And specifically, the ring itself. If you've seen the movies, hopefully this will make sense. The way the ring works is the ring captivates people by taking something that they love that might very well be good and relativizing it, making it the all-consuming thing in their lives such that it destroys them. So the ring takes elves and makes them orcs. 
The, the ring takes kings and makes them wraiths. The ring takes Smeagol, which is like a normal human being, and makes him into this creature, Gollum. And how does the ring do that? Well, in Smeagol's case, Smeagol loved the beauty of the ring. And that was twisted and aggravated and spun out of control such that Gollum's obsession with the ring destroyed him. And there's one particular character in the first book or movie uh, named Boromir. And he is, when we meet him, he's this very noble, decent, honorable man who cares deeply about his people. In 21st century language, we would say he was patriotic. And the ring used his patriotism. And it spun it out of control. And it ended up making Boromir this violent man who lusted after power. And by the end of the movie, he's almost unrecognizable from the person that we first meet. And that's a, a scary but compelling picture of how the enemy works in our lives. When we desire beauty and we desire to be attractive, there's nothing wrong with that, but the enemy can use that desire and turn it into an eating disorder. We all thirst for intimacy and meaningful connection with someone else. And the enemy uses that and it turns it into a sex addiction. A lot of us want to be successful, so we have ambition. There's nothing wrong with that. But what that can become is a workaholism that destroys our most meaningful relationships. We may care deeply about all that's wrong in the world, and we long to see those wrong things put right. Of course, that's a wonderful thing. But the enemy can even use that to turn us into cruel hate-filled, angry people. Even the very best things, when, or even the, even the very, very, very good things, when they take preeminence in our lives above Jesus, that's just like this little door that the enemy uses to, to gain a foothold in our lives. And so what you and me need, if we are going to thrive as followers of Jesus and become, you know, the best versions of ourselves, we need deliverance. We need the cosmic rules of the game to change because if it is on us to have a perfectly ordered love relationship where Jesus is always number one, we're going to fail every single time. We need a deliverer. We need that ring to be destroyed. And our text in Mark 1 gives us a very interesting clue as to how God in Jesus Christ accomplishes that deliverance. Uh, if you notice the demoniac man referred to Jesus as the Holy One of God. That's a very rare title. In fact, it only appears one other time in the entire Bible. And it happens, occurs in the story of Samson, the book of Judges, chapter 16. Now, some of you know who Samson was. He, you know, it's kind of a complicated story, to be honest, but he was, is problematic, we might say, nowadays. He was this, uh, this man who was very strong, and uh, God used him to deliver Israel for a season. But the way that Samson did it was interesting. He was captured. He was bound. His eyes were gouged out, it says. And then when he was paraded before the enemies of God, they stretched out his hands in the temple, and he pushed against the pillar and brought the house down. Samson delivered the nation of Israel through self-sacrifice. And though his deliverance was imperfect and complicated, it points to a final definitive changing of the game. 
Because in Jesus Christ, just a few years after the story that we read, read this morning, was captured and bound and tortured, and he too, his arms were stretched out. And when he died, it says, that the veil in the temple was torn in two, and the earth shook and rocks split. And what the book of Colossians tells us is that when Jesus died, he disarmed demonic rulers and authorities. When Jesus died, he made a public spectacle over them. He triumphed over them. He threw the ring of power into the mountain of doom. He changed the rules of the game. He forever broke the the untrammeled authority of the evil one. And what that means for us is that the devil, though active in the world, will flee from us when we utilize the disarming authority of Jesus that we possess because of our faith in him. And I want to close by giving you a very practical, actionable tool to use in your own life to utilize the authority of Jesus. What is it? It's one word, one little word. You know that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? There's this line, uh, it's worth reading. The prince of darkness grim We tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. What's that word? The word is liar. Liar. There is nothing that the enemy wants to do more than weaken your faith in Jesus Christ. There is no greater strategy the enemy has to throw you off than by causing you to disbelieve what God has made true of you in Jesus. And so what I'm counseling you to do is to yield that word, liar, like a spiritual sword. And so when the enemy says to you, you are not good enough, you're never going to be good enough, you're not successful enough, you can say, liar. When the enemy says, you are always going to be alone. You're always going to be disappointed. When you look back over the course of your life, you're going to be consumed with all the things you miss out on. You can say, liar. When the enemy says, your faith is weak, you're always going to be doubting. You're never going to have a meaningful relationship with God. Are you even a Christian? You can say, liar. First Peter says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why will he flee from you? Because Jesus has a disarming authority over him. And when we are in Jesus, we possess that authority too. So when we say liar, the devil will flee. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it portrays our Lord as this.